Hello, everybody. It's the next episode of the Shift M podcast. We have a special guest today, James Bach, and um, he is the really famous in the area of software testing. I'm, I'll just give you the microphone and let you present yourself in a few words, James, please. Oh, I'm uh, a software testing philosopher, coach, uh, trainer, and advocate, and uh, uh, expert witness uh, <laughs> on court cases. I think everybody who's listening now, they know who you are. So let's just get to the questions, which I have a lot of them. I actually, okay. I'm actually a big fan of the book you wrote, like, I guess, like 17 years ago. It's one of the two books which changed my understanding of software testing. The first one was The Art of Software Testing by um, Glenford Myers. And right. the second one, yeah, is yours. So I'm in Thank most... You. Yeah, yeah, it's really like the the book really changed my 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 philosophy as well. So in most cases, I'm with you on the same page on everything we're going to discuss today. But I will try to play the devil's advocate as much as I can in order to make it more interesting. Okay. Okay. Because I sure. do I do agree with you in most questions, but still. So I was listening to one of your videos, which is like ten years old, and you were saying that there that you are fighting with so many misunderstandings in the industry, in the area of testing. And you were saying that there are so many books which are wrong and people yes. are wrong and books are wrong. So my yes. first question is, what's the situation now? Has it been, has something changed since then? Uh, um, not much, not much. I would say that there is a new book that just came out that I didn't write and had no involvement in that, is not completely stupid about testing. It's called uh, Thinking Driven Testing by a guy mm -hmm. named uh, Adam Roman. And I'm very surprised to see this book. Uh, it, it, it's, it's got some interesting stuff in there. I still think, it, to me, it's like eating a delicious sandwich that someone has sprinkled sand in, like it's, they dropped it on a beach. And so there are these, these gritty little rocks that are in it that, that spoil the meal mm. uh, because the guy keeps talking about uh, standards, horrible standards uh, that we have, the ISO standards, the ISO 29119 standard, which is just a ridiculous, awful standard that mm. nobody should follow. And he, he talks about these things like we've all agreed that they're, that they're reasonable, but if you if you take that stuff out of it, he's got some great stuff in there about thinking like a tester and modeling and the stuff that, that I think that we should be uh, talking about. Uh, I mean, we should have been talking about for years and years, the things I've been talking about for years and years, uh, which, is, which is the tester thinking like an analyst instead of like a paper pusher. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I have to say to give you a compliment, uh, I was going through your website and you do seem to be genuinely thinking about things. And I appreciate that. Thanks. That's important. <laughs> a lot of people are parroting other people's opinions and I don't think that's what you were doing. I think you have a point of view and mm -hmm. you uh, feel strongly about it and you're excited about it and you want to share it and you want to engage with people on it. And that's what I do too. Oh, so even if we even if I disagree with with you on something, there's we have to bear in mind that there's a higher, much more important issue at play, which is the world needs thinkers and leaders, uh, not just uh, uh, people who memorize other people's opinions. Well, thanks a lot. My my question coming from that: What do you think are the biggest mistakes we have in the in the testing industry? Just give the few most important things which you think we are doing wrong. I would say that the, the, the biggest thing is a, a fixation on test cases mm -hmm. and uh, a idolization of, of test cases. It's almost, it's a fetish. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a very unhealthy obsession because test cases to me are not even testing. Uh, the testing is what testers do. So I, I keep trying to refocus onto testers 
and think of test cases as a means to an end of testing. I, I don't even always use test cases when I do testing. I sometimes don't use them. Uh, and sometimes I do. I use tools of all kinds. I use documentation of all kinds. I do lots of things when I test, but the, the center of testing for me is not test cases, it's mental models. Mental models is the exact axis of, of testing. And a mental model is a model you hold in your mind. It's, it's, it's not even a model that's, that's necessarily explicitly formulated. And so that's what I would say that's the, the biggest uh, mistake. And the, the second issue is that the mindset of the tester is misunderstood and uh, and not uh, respected. Uh, you were speaking of discipline in our little comment uh, battle that we had on your your yeah. uh, website. And I appreciate discipline as well, although I have to admit I wrote an entire book against the idea of discipline. Uh, my, my second book, Secrets of a Buccaneer Scholar, attacks mm -hmm. the idea of discipline. But professionally, discipline matters to me uh, a lot mm -hmm. and I apply my discipline to to focusing on the things that matter and to me the things that matter are people and skill and uh, the social fabric of projects those are the things that actually determine whether a project is going to come out good or not good mm -hmm. uh, not test cases and not thinking like a cheerleader. A lot of people in the agilist part of the testing world, it seems to me they think like cheerleaders. Mm -hmm. They say quality is, quality is everyone's responsibility, and they turn that thinking about quality into a kind of rah-rah, cheerleading, <laughs> everything is great attitude. But that's not the tester's mindset. The tester's mindset is like a bodyguard's mindset. We need to be looking for threats. We need to be looking for where things could go wrong. We need to stay focused on that. And that's why mixing testing with development leads to very shallow testing, which is the third thing that I would say is a big uh, mistake in our industry is a devotion, it seems, an obsession with shallow software testing and a uh, disrespect for deep software testing and of course a lack of understanding about what deep software testing even is. So if I go into a typical company and a typical project and ask any tester or anyone doing testing since there are fewer and fewer testers around but there are lots of people who are doing testing that aren't called testers mm -hmm. and if I say what's your test strategy almost guaranteed they will not be able to tell me what their test strategy is that they and and that almost guaranteed that no one in their careers has ever asked them that question that they they've never had to explain a test strategy to anyone and and aren't even quite sure what it is and what it could possibly mean and why could anyone possibly want a test strategy instead they just say things like well here are my test cases and i say okay yeah i see your test cases but how did you decide to create those test cases as opposed to different test cases? Why those particular test cases? And they sometimes say things like, well, because those are the only ones I thought of. Mm -hmm. uh, because, or, or they'll say, because I, I created all of the test cases that, that, you can create. They, they won't even be aware that they've only selected a tiny, tiny subset of all the kinds of, of uh, testing that they could have been doing. So teaching people to talk about test strategy is a big part of my work that I do with clients these days. Mm -hmm. um, and it, But it's not easy because a lot of, of managers just don't think that it, that it matters. And meanwhile, they've got all these problems in the field and they're scratching their heads thinking, boy, why, why do we have all these problems in the field? Uh, and yet they just keep redoubling their efforts to not pay attention to the problems they have in testing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
speaking about people, in my, in my experience, in all the companies I've been working in, uh, testers are usually people who get smaller salaries. They get the low, well, they have less education in this area. They are usually, in most cases, they are even interns. So they're coming from, uh, from schools and universities, just not as a programmers. But uh, the attitude is like that. If you cannot be a programmer, be a tester, which is wrong, oh, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, That's you... been the attitude for since I got into the business 30 years ago. It was the attitude then. And, but I came from development. I started as a production coder, and I discovered testing, or I was, I was introduced to testing uh, by Apple Computer. Mm -hmm. And I fell in love with it because it fits my personality and my, the rhythms of my mind so much better than, than development did. Uh, so I never looked back. I, I, I used my coding skills as a tester and my coding skills are important to me as a tester. But I would also say that I appreciate testers who may not have coding skills. And I don't think that I've, I used to think all testers should have coding skills. I no longer believe that mm -hmm. because now I think in terms of a test team and a test team benefits from having people who are less technical on it, as well as people who are more technical because we help each other see more of the world. And I'm, I'm in a constant danger and I suspect you are too. Cause you know, you're, are you a coder? I believe you are a coder. Yeah. Uh, and there's a constant danger that I know I'm in when I test, which mm -hmm. is I'm constantly thinking of tools I could write. I'm saying, oh, I could write this tool and mm -hmm. it would make this kind of testing so much better and it would be really cool and it would be wonderful and we'll be able to do this thing really fast. Yeah. But then I immediately get obsessed with the tool and I need people around me to say, wait, you just spent an entire day <laughs> writing this script that, that, it was maybe worth an hour and you spent a whole day on it. And now, now you keep wanting to add features to it, but we still have all this testing to do. Mm -hmm. So I, I know that I'm prone to that. I, cause I, I, I enjoy uh, programming and I enjoy creating cool things. So it's like a drinking problem that I have <laughs> with coding. <laughs> and I know that. And so like any you know, reasonable, well, I'm a pizza-holic. I, I have to worry about eating too much pizza. Uh, that's my drug of choice. So, you know, anytime that I, that I um, go near a pizza place, I, I need to tell people, you know, I really shouldn't have too much pizza or I'm going to get sick. Mm -hmm. And I need, I need them to help me. Uh, I need them to know I'm on a diet. Uh, I need them uh, to, to, put social pressure on me or else I will eat too much pizza. Mm -hmm. And, and it's just a weakness I have. And so we all have different weaknesses and, and, and a weakness of mine in testing is I dwell too much on tooling. Mm -hmm. And, and. So you're I saying that being a programmer at the same time and the tester is kind of a problem, right? It is a, it is a, uh, a problem that I could manage with willpower and, and mm -hmm. discipline. And I find that difficult to manage. I know how to manage it. I know what I'm, I should be doing. Uh, and yet it, it seems to happen over and over again. And so another way to solve it is to have people on the project that you say, look, you're not, into tools, I'm into tools. So mm -hmm. you gotta watch me. Mm -hmm. I'll watch you in case you're doing something slowly that you could do a lot faster with a tool. And you watch me in case you feel that I am getting obsessed over a small thing. Because uh, you know how development is. Uh, for instance, I, I once developed some test data chose, chosen randomly from, from uh, zip codes. And I decided on a whim that it would be more interesting for my client if she saw a map of all the zip codes that I was using in my testing. Now, it wasn't necessary to see this map, but I thought it would be cool and it would help her understand what testing we were doing. So I just threw together a little script in the R language to, to create a, a physical map with little red dots on it. And I thought it would take 
I don't know, 20 minutes. But because the first library that I chose uh, was mysteriously incompatible with my version of R, it ended up taking three hours. So I burned three hours of project time trying to do something that really wasn't important. But, you know, halfway through it, you feel like it's the sunk cost bias. You feel like, oh, I've already... I've already spent time on this. I'm almost there. Maybe the next thing I do will finally make it work. So the development is full of these little rabbit holes yeah. that you kind of, these gopher holes that you keep stepping in and, and sometimes getting stuck in. Yeah. So okay. I, so I sometimes need the voice of sanity around and I find it's the people who are not obsessed with tools, but instead may be obsessed with the user obsessed with uh, with their experience that helped me get out of these holes or stay out of them and, and apply the discipline I know I should apply. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got it. Next question, which really bothers me for many years already. What do you think about the testing exit criteria, so-called problem or question? So when do we stop testing? At what point of time? Or Yeah, well, I think the exit criteria for uh, uh, testing has always been um, kind of a silly thing that that uh, I've rejected since the beginning almost you know exit criteria like the what is the exit criteria for the project the exit criteria is when we think we're done with the project no, for a tester for criteria. one individual for one person so let's say I'm a tester you give me the product and I start testing it at one at what point of time I may say my work is done so when the yeah. time is over or what what's the because yeah. most people, like you said, like you started to say, most people do it like this. I have a set of test scripts or test, you know, right. something. Yeah, and they just go through the list. 15 of them is done. I'm done. But that's, yeah. that's wrong, right? Well, yeah, it's wrong. I, I actually do a 45-minute talk on this subject, so I'm going to try to, to uh, uh, reduce it. But let's, uh, let me put it this way. A simple way to, to say it is that, we're done testing when we have answered all the questions that our clients have about the status of the product. But of course that just pushes the can down the road a little bit because then you say, well, what are the questions then? And how do we know we've, we've answered them? Well, uh, one way to say it is that uh, we all know when uh, we have finished searching for, let's say, uh, Easter eggs in a room full of Easter eggs. Mm -hmm. uh, let, let's say you have to search a room for Easter eggs. Someone has hidden Easter eggs. You don't know how many, but you're going to walk around that room and you're going to find Easter eggs. Now, we, nobody has problems with saying, I think, I'm, I think I've found all the Easter eggs. Uh, I think I am done searching this room for Easter eggs. We all know how to do it. And if you analyze, as I have, what you actually do inside your head when you decide that you're finished searching for Easter eggs, that is quite similar to, uh, it's I think the same process as deciding that I'm done with uh, testing. In order to decide I'm finished with uh, finding Easter eggs, I have to know what an Easter egg looks like. And similarly, I have to know what a bug looks like. I have to believe that I can recognize the thing that I am searching for, and I am searching for bugs. Mm -hmm. So if I don't believe that I can recognize what I'm searching for, then I cannot convince myself that I'm finished. I might stop because I'm exhausted, but I won't stop because I'm finished, you see. There's a difference. Exactly between yeah. saying I'm done testing and saying time has run out or they're telling me to stop or, you know, so I interpret, I interpret your question as how do I decide on my own that I've done enough testing? So let me go through the factors because there's, I believe, eight of them. Uh, one is I, I need to know what the space is that I am searching. So that's the scope of my uh, uh, work. I need to know what kinds of things might be hiding the things from me that I'm searching for. So what are the obstacles? What are the things that, what are the reasons why bugs don't just jump right out and report themselves? Mm -hmm. uh, I need to, because I need to, to uncover the bugs. So I need to know what might be covering them up. For instance, I know that 
if I don't give the right kind of data to the system, then a bug might be there all along, but it won't appear because I didn't give the right data. So I know that I have to have a good sample of data that is uh, that will enable me to see the problems then i need a means to detect those problems and i have to be confident in that means of detecting them uh, i i have to be wary of the costs of doing this because when the costs go too high it may not be worth testing anymore and that's a big reason why i stopped testing is that the cost rises past the point where i can afford it because i've got other things to test or because I've got other things to do. And that's another thing called opportunity cost, which is the value of the things that you could be doing instead of testing. So I have to be aware of the value of those other things. For instance, the value of releasing the product is important too. Mm -hmm. So if testing is holding up the release of the product, at a certain point, further testing is going to cause more harm than good. Mm -hmm. uh, I need to... Uh, understand the different values of the different parts of the spaces I could be searching. And that's about risk. And I also need to know the value of the thing that I'm searching for, which is also about risk. If I suspect that I'm testing something where there's no reasonable chance that there could be an important bug in it, there might be bugs, but they won't be important bugs. Mm -hmm. Then I'm more likely to put it down and say, there's something I, I shouldn't be testing this. I should be testing something else. Mm -hmm. um, finally, I am often, I often stop testing temporarily. So what I'll do is I will test until my energy starts running out and my, uh, my attention starts wandering because when I'm not sharp in my head, I'm not going to be good at testing. And what then I'm going to pause on that. I call it defocusing. I'm going to go test something else or I'm going to go do something else. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to come back to testing that same thing later if the risk is high enough that it is warranted. Mm -hmm. So I'm working, I'm working all these things out in my mind and I'm also talking to people about them as I'm doing it. How the project can, I'm sorry to interrupt you. How the yeah. project can plan that? So let's say you're the tester, there's another person who's a tester, and then it's a group of testers. So how me, if, if I'm a manager, for example, how can I plan how much time and how much, I don't know, money I need to allocate for the testing before I can release the product? Well, you, you're familiar with uh, the theory of constraints? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, so you know that in the, the theory of constraints, they talk about how you need to put slack into the system partly because of unforeseen uh, events that happen. And if you try to over plan, you try to plan every little thing, then you're guaranteed that things are going to go horribly wrong and everything's going to get locked up and, and like gridlock and traffic. In fact, that's what causes gridlock. That's what causes uh, traffic congestion is when there isn't enough space between the cars. Um, you literally need a certain amount of space between the cars or if it, if it drops below a certain critical value, then that sets up a standing wave that eventually turns into stop and go traffic. And, they, and research has shown that exactly what that critical distance needs to be in order to have maximum flow of the traffic. So you need slack. You need slack in, in factories. You need slack in, in, in traffic and you need slack in your work. So we, we can plan it broadly. Mm -hmm. What I often say is, is uh, uh, look, this, this seems to be like a, a testing, this part of the testing looks like it's gonna be about 20 sessions of testing, where a session is 90 minutes of uninterrupted work. Um, oh, so I think it's estimate about, somehow. I, yeah, I think it's about 20 sessions. I'll there estimate very broadly, but, mm -hmm. what, but, but part of how I do that estimate is that I estimate only based on uh, perfect sessions. A perfect session is a session where every moment of the session is spent in productive testing. So if I think that it's going to be 20 sessions of perfect testing. And productive testing means what? That means that every moment I am looking for bugs and I am not doing setup 
work and I am not reporting bugs because reporting bugs is an interruption to testing and setup. Any setup work whatsoever and setup work is defined as anything I do in testing which mm -hmm. does not have a reasonable chance of finding a bug. So anything mm -hmm. I do, if, I, if I'm starting up my rebooting my computer, I'm not I'm not looking for bugs. If I'm setting up a user account or trying to get my test platform online, I'm not looking for bugs. If I go, if I stop my testing, could I go talk to somebody uh, because I need to know how this thing is configured? I'm not looking for bugs. All that is setup time. So and here's then, what I do. And then you estimate that 20 sessions of that, that productive testing will help us find all the possible eggs in the room. Well, what I say is, is, 20, uh, 20 perfect sessions with no setup time and, and no, no bugs reported uh, because you know, no time spent reporting or investigating bugs. Mm -hmm. uh, I do that based on the, the risk and the complexity as I understand it, based mm -hmm. on conversations or uh, ex previous experiences or, or whatever. You know, there's analogy and experience is a popular way to do it. So this is, that's just an estimate. But then what I do is I apply to that data from past sessions because I measure, uh, occasionally I measure carefully. You don't need to do this measurement all the time. But I occasionally measure uh, carefully how I actually use my time. And usually what happens, I can count on, especially near the beginning of a project, that about half my sessions will be spent in bug reporting and investigation and in setup. What that means is, is that 20 sessions then becomes 40 sessions. So I have, I say my estimate is 20 sessions, but when I apply my multipliers to it based on past experience of my efficiency of my sessions, I know it's going to take 40 real sessions to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how many sessions can I do a day? Generally speaking, I can do three testing sessions a day. Mm -hmm. So then that turns into 40 divided by three, and there that you've got your, your estimate for the number of days. And then you modify that estimate. I don't believe in – there's a certain school of thought that says you should never modify an estimate. I think whoever came up with that idea is an idiot. And I always modify my estimates. I modify my estimate after the first day, after the second day, after the third day. I continuously mm -hmm. change my, my estimate based on the best information I have at the moment. Mm -hmm. And What do you think? Uh, I, I got it totally. What do you think about the concept of uh, uh, counting the amount of bugs testers produce? and uh, even motivating them for, for, for the numbers to, to deliver. And there are even companies online where you can buy bugs. So you can just, um, you know, give them the credit card, give them your product, and then they will charge you for every bug they find. Not for the time they spend, not for the sessions like you mentioned, not for the test script, but for, the amount, for, the, for each particular bug. What do you think about that? I think it's a horrible idea that creates bad testing. Yeah, uh -huh. So don't do that. That's what I would strongly recommend. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, counting bugs is a problem to begin with just because some bugs are little and some bugs are, are big. But what you're going to do if you count bugs like that is you're, you're first of all, you're going to systematically discourage people from reporting small bugs, bugs that they think are small. Yeah. The problem with that is that a small bug might actually be a big bug that looks small. And so you're, you're telling testers, well, never, don't, don't bother me with, with small bugs. Another thing you're doing with that is if you're, I mean, there's, wait, we have to separate whether you are talking about contractors who are being paid bounties for finding bugs. So that's one kind of category. But yeah. another category is someone who is full time someone who is who's on salary no it's bounties only it's only freelancers of course there are no salaries they just they just get money when they find something if they don't find anything there's no money right well you know that if you're talking about that then mm -hmm. you then you're also talking about uh, different levels of pay for different size bugs for different you know so, yeah, so in other words if you yeah. find a problem that the company thinks oh this is a really really or a horrible problem then you you get paid more for that Definitely. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I think that's, uh, that's 
I don't see a problem with with having a bounty program. In fact, I, I think it's probably a really good idea, but I sure wouldn't want to be in that business of, of <laughs> making money that way. That's not what I want to, be, to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I've heard of people who, who do that and, 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 and like the lifestyle and the freedom that, that, uh, that, that comes with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I'm good. But if you're saying that that's the only testing that happens, I would think that that'd be a pretty weak uh, test strategy if that's the only testing that happens. If you're saying, let's sprinkle that on top of ordinary responsible testing, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense because then, you see, I would love to to test something and say, I think I've tested this pretty well. Let's release it and then we'll pay people you know, a thousand dollars if they can find a bug that we, that we mm-hmm. haven't found. And then we'll study that bug and mm-hmm. we'll figure out why we didn't find it internally. We'll improve our process mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll, uh, uh, try again. You know, I think that can be fine if you combine that bounty process with a responsible okay. internal process. Okay. In your book, you're saying that it's even like a, not a chapter, but a section which is called don't be a gatekeeper. And you're saying there it's wrong uh, to, to organize work of testers as people who are giving the green light for the product to be released. But, yeah, it's a conflict of interest, yeah. Which I agree with, but I've, I've seen it in all companies, not in a few of them, but in all companies. It happens exactly like that. So a group of testers sitting there, and when programmers finish, finish writing some code and finish the release, they give it to the, t- to, to the group of testers and testers spend like a day or two for so-called regression testing or what they call it. Yeah. They have a list of scripts. They go through all the, you know, this, all the items and then they say, okay, it's ready. Let's release it. And this information is what managers are using. So the manager relies on that information because, you know, what else the manager can rely on? So what do you think is the alternative approach? How it should be done the right way? Well, I think that, and this is where discipline comes in. This is where I think you and I are probably on the same page about the meaning of the word discipline. I think it is a vital part of testing professionalism, testing discipline, to for the tester to remind himself every day, I am here to help people, help other people understand the status of the product so that they can make decisions about it. And I need to focus on that and get that status correct. Now, if I pollute my thinking by then making a decision based on what I believe the status is, then a then that's pollution in my thinking because you can't help but but change your testing even subtly, even unconsciously to achieve the result that you want to achieve. The, the result of shipping the product, you turn into a cheerleader when you have to do honest testing. And then you also have this desperate feeling that I want the project to be over with. I want to ship this product. I want to be able to say yes to myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it compromises your your thought process. So I think that it's an important part of the discipline to say, I'm testing. I'm going to present my results. I mean, I I can I can make recommendations based on my best understanding of what everybody believes, uh, what they've told me that they believed. But I I remind people I am just testing here. I do not make the decision to ship. I separate myself from that. Uh, it's 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 exactly like the problem that that a father has. Perhaps you are a father. No, not uh, okay. Well, when you are before you're a father, you think I'm going to be a great father because I'm gonna I'm gonna lay down rules for my children, and I will never I will never compromise on these rules for their own safety. And then you become a father and you want to be liked and you want them to love you and not, not tell, tell you that they hate you forever. And you do compromise <laughs> the rules. What really it should be is 
if you're the father of someone, some other father should supervise your children and then you should supervise his children. Uh, and we would all be better fathers if we did that because we would be less susceptible to all the charming ways that children have of getting us to, uh, to let them have their cell phones uh, when they shouldn't have their cell phones and, and, uh, and, and all that. Uh, it's, it, I think that it is important for testing to be an independent thought process and an independent activity because otherwise testing becomes a political tool. It becomes like a state-owned newspaper and you've been testers become cheerleaders. And there, the, the term that I use for this is critical distance. Testing requires critical distance. And the challenge with testing is you want to have lots of critical distance, which means you want to have your own way of thinking that's separate from other people's ways of thinking. But you'd, what you don't want is social distance. You want very little social distance, which means that you're all together on one team, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that social distance and critical distance are handcuffed together with a very strong rubber band. So that when you try to get critical distance, that also creates social distance, which you don't want, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone says that tester, that tester's not like us. That tester doesn't doesn't uh, think the way we do. So he's not really on our team. And then when you come onto the team, then now you've lost your critical distance. Now you're thinking the same way everybody else is. And they all say, rah, 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 let's ship it. And you go, rah, 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 let's ship it. Yeah, let's ship it. Everyone's happy. Let's ship it. Cause I don't want to be the only one at the party saying, saying, uh, let's not have fun. But that's what Agile wants. They say we don't need testers anymore. There's like the team, the team tests everything, right? Yeah, they're, they're fools. They're, <laughs> the people who believe that are fools okay. and children. They're children. I have to say I'm, I'm at an age now. I think this happens to most people when they get into their 50s where you start looking around and maybe this is not true for women, it's, I, but I think it's true for you know, men. Uh, any kind of assertive men in the world probably go through the same thing I'm going through right mm -hmm. now, which is you look around and you say, boy, I'm at the age where people are running countries. You know, people are, are running empires. Uh, I'm at the age where the warlords of old took over entire continents with their armies. Mm -hmm. And I'm at the same age now as those guys were. Uh, and so you look around and you just, th you start thinking, uh, well, most people are younger than me. Uh, maybe their problems are coming from the fact that they're children. You, you sort of look around and you see all these children are running companies. Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and so when I was, when I was 25 and I was complaining about the way countries, companies and countries, companies were being run, mm -hmm. I was just thinking, what idiots. Yeah. These guys are screwing up the company. But now I'm thinking the same things 25 years later. I'm, I'm twice as old. And I go, oh, well, no wonder. They're a bunch of kids. Of course, <laughs> they don't know how to run companies. So, you know, I think that, that when, we, when, when I was young, when we were all young and we came up with Agile, it sounded like a great idea. Let's mm -hmm. just all work together on a team and cooperate. But, but there was always a problem with that. And the problem with that that I had is that when people talk about working together on a team, they're never talking about people like me working with them because I argue. I'll bet you do too. Yeah. I, I speak up. I don't just go along with the crowd. I've never have. I never have in my entire life. I was a disruptive person in high school, which is why I had to quit high school and never went on to college. I was too disruptive to occupy a classroom. I got into fist. I got into a fist fight once with my teacher in school shortly before I quit school. <laughs> I would skip classes. I do not sit there quietly. I am an active, active learner. And so when I want to learn something, I don't go to a class. I hire the teacher. I hired a history professor from San Jose State University, mm -hmm. for instance, years ago to teach me history. Um, and that was great. I wanted to learn to sail a yacht. So I hired someone to teach me to sail a yacht. 
I like one-on-one relationships with, uh, with a teacher because then I can argue with them and no one else in the classroom says, hey, stop arguing with them. I go, I'm paying this guy. I'm going to argue with them because that's how I learn. <laughs> so when people talk about let's all just get along together, uh, well, I've had a lot of training and listening skills and conflict resolution and management. I was a manager for 10 years. I know how to get along, mm-hmm. but I am... I think it's toxic and wrong to just smile and nod and go along with things most of the time. I think we need to have vigorous discussions about what the design should be. And what I keep finding is not many people have the patience for discussion that I have and have the dedication to it that I have. They like so, to think positively. That's what they So call. yeah, I think I think of them as as cheerleaders. And so that's why I became a tester. I became a tester because it's absolutely reasonable for somebody to be questioning the design and and raising difficult questions about things if you're in the testing role. And so that's why I chose the testing role and so that I fit in. Uh, And what Agile has subtly tried to do, I believe, is to to take a naive idea of uh, self-organization and to turn that into, again, a fetish, uh, uh, to idolize it. And so what I'm, what I'm now seeing, and this is very common, I have a client right now where, mm-hmm. believe it or not, the, the managers of this company have agreed with a set of recommendations that I've made to improve their testing. I've set out these recommendations in a formal document. We had a formal meeting with top management. They agreed and none of the recommendations are being implemented (laughs) even after they said we agree to them because what they said in weeks afterward is well yeah we agreed to the recommendations but we're a self-organizing company so basically we're not going to lead anybody we're not going to tell anybody what to do we're not going to lay down any law so you so that means that i have to go to each team and try to convince each team. And then each team has each person in it. And what that means is that, that you know, nothing, no, no leadership is happening and, and, and nothing gets done. Now, that might sound like a contradiction because I just said that, uh, you know, Agile talks about, you know, everyone working together. And then I say, yeah, but I argue and I think, uh, you know, arguing is important. And now I'm complaint seem to be complaining because I'm saying that these different people in these different teams are all arguing with me. Um, so, but this is a, exactly the, the example of what I'm, I'm saying. I'm saying that it's problematic. Agile is problematic because either people are, are going along with what any strong-minded person suggests and just shrugging and going along with it, or they're going to be arguing about what's right. And, and, uh, leadership is going to need to step in and then it leadership doesn't step in because that's not agile because we have to just wait until there's total consensus on everything before we go forward. So James, James let me read the question. It's a, it's a, uh, a lot of trouble. Yeah. The question from one of, from one of our listeners, uh, right about what we are talking about now, he's asking what example of steps can he as a tester take to enable critical distance in a context of a team that just wants a cheerleader without sacrificing uh, social distance. So what well, I think, I think what you want to do is, is, is first assess where are you with social distance? Are you uh, total uh, blood buddies and, and pals with everybody right now? In other words, is there, is there, are you in a situation where there's very little social distance? If so, then you want to use that close social distance to talk with folks and say, uh, friends, uh, we, all, we all care about each other. We all like working together. Let me tell you about uh, an important concern I have. And the concern I have is that we're all going to be fooled at once by a big problem. <laughs> so I would, I would, if I have a really a little social distance and I'm very close with the team, then I can use that to talk to them about the problem. The Uh problem that has to be managed is that some of us 
at some time need to establish critical distance in order to properly save ourselves from being fooled by our own product. And that and that's going to require us to tolerate some tension on the team that people are going to need to play devil's advocate. They are going to need to ask uncomfortable questions at times. So one way you can manage it is you can say, I'm going to go into tester mode now. You know, for instance, uh, when I'm with my colleagues, one of the things that I do sometimes, we, we do with each, with each other, is one of us might announce, I want to do transpecting now. Can I do transpecting with you? Now, transpecting is a process mm-hmm. that I came up with years ago. Transpecting means that I ask you a whole bunch of tough questions. And while I'm asking you those questions, I'm going to feel, it's going to feel like you're being interrogated by me. Like I'm an interrogator mm-hmm. who's, who's accusing you of something. I'm going to ask you these tough questions about your work. While I'm asking you those questions, I am also silently asking myself the same questions and I'm answering them for myself. So I ask you the tough questions. I hear your answers. I compare them with my answers and I'm using your different brain to protect my brain from its own bias. I'm seeing how your answers are different than mine to get new ideas. So I announce that I'm transpecting with you. I ask your permission to do it instead of just doing it because that means once you go, oh, okay, you want to transpect. Okay, so now I'm ready. I'm ready for these tough questions, and I won't be upset with you for asking them. People used to get upset with me when I would do this with them because I wouldn't be telling them what I was doing, and I found that, that announcing it solved that problem. So that's how you can, you can try to preserve the social distance mm-hmm. and get the critical distance by – negotiating for that by warning people I'm about to become a tester right now don't worry I still love you (laughs) that's what you got to do you have to actively manage this creative tension between Mm -hmm. thinking differently but caring about the people that you think differently from Mm -hmm. you know that's you know I we just did it we just did it uh, right. You did it right here at the beginning of this podcast because you said, Oh, I, you know, I think a lot of the same way that you do, but I'm going to manufacture some, some discritical distance. Mm -hmm. So you, you announced that to me because you're trying to lower the social distance while increasing the critical distance. You are doing that exact technique. (laughs) Okay, thanks for noticing. Uh, one more really important question for me. Uh, should we, I'll, I'll put it this way, just straight to the point. Should we blame programmers or testers for the bugs which we put to production? So who is guilty? When something happens in production, we'll lose the data, we lose the customers, we'll lose money. And then the clients, they come back, angry clients, they come back to us or the management come back to us and say, look guys, you just ruined the whole thing. We really lost a lot of, you know, sensitive data or something. So who is guilty in this case? Who do we blame? Testers or programmers? Well, I could point out that that's a false dichotomy and uh, that we can blame everybody, but the answer is programmers. (laughs) (laughs) The answer is that you, no, it's not programmers. What it is is you, the people who are to blame are the people who are responsible for creating quality. Quality is created by management that creates the conditions under which all of the work happens and then by the developers who actually create the product. So management needs to take responsibility for creating or not creating the right conditions so that developers could actually do the job that they, that they are supposed to do. And developers, of course, they create the things. Now, I've, now I have to tell you, having said that, that I know the answer for any project that I'm on. For any mm-hmm. project that, where I am responsible for testing, I always blame myself. <laughs> and no one is going to stop me from doing that. I take it personally when I miss anything. And 
and I'm, I, I'm healthy about it. I'm healthy about it. What I, what I do is I'm very eager to find out what bugs I didn't find. And then I'm very eager to, to see what can I learn from that? How can I become a better tester? It, did I not understand the risks? Well, what are the real risks? Did I, did I not realize that there was a certain interface that I could have used? Is it, was there a tool I could have used? Mm -hmm. um, was my environment not realistic? Did I forget about IE or Firefox mm -hmm. <laughs> because I only use Chrome? Now, what was the reason why I didn't find that? And it might be that it's just bad luck. It mm -hmm. might be that I could not reasonably have expected myself to find that particular problem. But I find it productive and healthy in myself to, to just take every bug that gets out and say, I'm going to treat it as if it were my fault and I'm going to do something about it. And I don't care that it's not really my fault. Mm -hmm. I'm going to treat it that way because it's more healthy for me to do that. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm thinking that that the best way to assign blame is for people to assign blame to themselves and not for people to assign blame to other people. Mm -hmm. And then if everyone just takes responsibility, that's just called taking responsibility, take mm -hmm. responsibility for whatever part that you may have played in this. And then to see what it is that you can do to become a better, uh, a better uh, person, a better technical mm -hmm. worker, a uh, better manager, uh, mm -hmm. That that is, I think, the the healthiest way to look at it. Yeah, well, I agree. Um, but it's programmers; they're mostly the blame. Yeah, I got the answer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, everywhere now, I hear people calling themselves QA engineers instead of testers. It feels like yeah. they like this title more. But yeah. what do you think about that? Well, I well, a you... big part of my discipline to bring up that word again is I'm a stickler for using words in ways that mean something. I try to carefully choose my words because ironically, I like the idea of engineering. I like that idea. Now I am, I am not an engineer in the sense that I've never been trained as an engineer. I have no license as an engineer. I'm not part of any uh, engineer, uh, formal engineer professional community. Uh, so, you know, but I shrug about that and say, I still love the idea of engineering and I still have an engineering discipline of my own. And to me, that discipline comes along with speaking carefully, using words in uh, appropriate ways. So I'm not gonna, I don't think QA engineer is an appropriate title first of all what does qa mean does it mean quality assistance because you no, mean you certainly, certainly are not assuring quality and i think you did a podcast about this that i listened yeah. to part of yeah I, I have no power to assure quality management has the power to assure quality maybe mm -hmm. developers have the power to assure quality maybe but testers certainly do not have that power and people who are called QA people who are not necessarily testers. There's not a whole lot of those people in, in around, I guess there are people in government projects like that. They tend to be people who are monitors of the process. They're, they're mm -hmm. trying to make sure the paperwork is, is all in order and they call that quality assurance. Uh, but of course the paperwork doesn't create quality either. So I would like to stay away from the whole, a QA idea, but if I ever say QA, I quickly say what I mean by QA is quality assistance mm -hmm. or quality analysis. Uh, I do not mean quality assurance because I simply don't have the power to do that. Uh, when I ask people, what is a tester? And they say, a tester is someone who ensures that the product is working. I, I simply ask them, so you have the power to compel the developers to fix any bug that you think needs to be fixed. Really? I think that's the project manager. I think you think you're a project manager. <laughs> uh, apparently you think you're a COO, you're a CEO. Uh, that's, uh, that's not what testers do. So I would say, don't say QA engineer. Uh, most of this just comes from young people trying to impress each other. And I prefer the word tester. 
that's what I feel. Because it's nice, it's nice and uh, humble. I, I, I prefer a, a uh, It's a nice for you, James. Life. It's nice for you because you're a professional tester. You're a respected tester. You're the author of, of a number of books. That's why you like it. But, but as we agreed before, people join companies with the titles of testers and they get like twice as lower salaries as programmers and uh, nobody respects them. That's, that's what we have in the industry now. I think that's oh, okay. Yeah. Well, then I think you should definitely call yourself a super <laughs> duper quality engineer genius. Then that's <laughs> superstar ninja. You know, like, I, I don't care what people call themselves uh, if their purpose is to fool other people into paying them lots of money. Um, okay. I mean, that, I'm not in the business of marketing. Uh, I, I'm, I'm in the business of testing. So, you know, that's not a testing question. <laughs> Okay, my last question, James. Um, I hear it a lot that people are telling me that uh, what's the point of having these manual testers? They call it manual testers, people with computers. Uh, we can replace them with tools, with unit tests, integration tests, automated tests, all kinds of tests. So they are saying if you need testers, if you need manual testers, then there is something wrong with your product. So make sure the product tests itself. What do you think about that? Are they speaking from a script or are they giving their actual human opinion? No, they're like real, pro they're programmers, first of all. Saying they're actual that. programmers? They're not yeah. just running a program that's saying that? Why don't they automate that? <laughs> you think that people say that so much, they could just automate that and stop saying it. Why do, why do people keep saying manually what they could say automatically? That's what I want to know. Uh, seriously, my, my first uh, issue with that is why do people do do these people think that their work can be automated do they do they think oh everyone's work can be automated except mine i'm the only more. one who does something that can't be automated yeah, why don't more. we have automated programmers how come you how come when you go to a programmer and say are you an automated programmer or a manual programmer they just look at you like you're crazy um, I mean, you said you were a coder. Tell me, are you an automated coder or are you a manual coder? No, I'm a manual one. Oh. It, does that, you're, that question doesn't even make sense, dude. You know it doesn't make sense. I know, yeah. And the reason why it doesn't make sense is very simple. Because programmers automatically float on top of all of the technology that they create. So you don't have a distinction between manual and automated programmer because all programmers are sitting at the boundary of what is automated and what is not automated. That's what, that's the job of a programmer is to negotiate the gateway between the world of the machines and the world of people. That's what they do. Now that's what testers do too. Testers are exactly the same. If I create a tool to help me with my work, I'm not automating my testing because the testing, like programming, is what my mind does. Programming is what a programmer's mind does, and testing is what a tester's mind does. And as soon as I write a tool to do something that I had been doing manually, that's no longer testing. That's now just a tool that's doing a thing. The testing resides in the human tester. Mm -hmm. So I look at people who say that and go, I, I think you don't understand what testing is, but there's hope because I bet you understand programming. If you're talking about automation, you probably understand that when a programmer uses a compiler, that's not automated programming. That's called using a compiler. That's just using a tool. It's a good metaphor. And, yeah. and so what we do have, however, is we have a notion of higher level programming and lower level programming, right? Mm -hmm. So what we can have is higher level testing and lower level testing. So I think when people say, let's automate that, they're basically trying to say, maybe we can do higher level testing where the testers are working with tools and they're working with abstractions and they're doing a lot of more things, you might say, with their tools than they could have done if they didn't use these tools. And that is a very reasonable idea. Mm -hmm. So 
I have no problem. Like I told you at the beginning of this podcast, I love tools. I'm a little obsessed with tools. But the fact that I use tools doesn't mean I'm automating testing. It means I'm supercharging my testing with my tools. Yeah, that's, well, I, as with everything before, I'm on the same page with you. <laughs> so, but thanks for clearing it up. Well, it's been a lot of fun talking with you. Okay, yeah, for me too. Thanks a lot for coming. I really appreciate that. And I'll get back to your book again. I actually going to reread it. <laughs> All right, man. Yeah, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.